We're in Exodus chapter 20, so if you want to use the Bibles that are there in the pew, you'll find that on page 77, Exodus 20. Last week we began a new series in which we looked at some of the content of Exodus 19, and really we were trying to set the scene for a series that that begins properly today in a series in the Ten Commandments. But, But I really would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, or certainly to jog your memory if you were, remember that context of these Ten Commandments. This law of God that we're going to look at this next while, it's not an impersonal statute book uh, developed in some uh, parliament or or by some uh, dictator. This is a gracious gift from a loving God, this, this law that we're going to look at together. Before God spoke one word of law to his people, and we noticed this last week, he reminded them of the great lengths that he had gone to, to to rescue them and to make them his people. Chapter 19, verse 4. I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's reminding them of, his, of how he gathered them and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Then he looks to the future, God does, and he tells these people of, of the wonderful role that they're going to play for him. He says, If you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. The whole earth is mine, but you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now as we move into chapter 20, one more time before there's a command, God reminds us of his love and his relationship with his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery and out of the land of Egypt. It's only then It's only when he's talked about his his saving, gracious work in their lives that God tells them how life can and should be. It's only then that we first hear a commandment. Eugene Peterson speaks simply but profoundly about this way of God's working. He says, before we're commanded, we are saved. We often get it backwards We think that keeping commandments somehow brings about our salvation. The reality is that God's act of salvation is the ground and source of our obedience. Peterson offers a a simple prayer, and I'd like us to, to share in that prayer now together just before we come to look at these commandments. Let's pray. Help us keep the proportions right, O God. Help us to understand that the great, massive, overwhelming reality is the salvation you have worked for us. Help us to see that any small obedience we manage is because of and in response to your saving grace. Amen. Amen. In the opening verses of the Bible, verses and chapters in Genesis, we're told that that man and woman are created together in the image of God. There's a lot of debate about the fullness of what that means. 
But one thing that it certainly seems to mean is that human beings were created distinct from the rest of creation. And one of the things that makes us distinctive is a, a spiritual capacity, a, a desire to look not only sideways around us, but upwards to, to find something to give our lives to and to worship. In other words, if you're a human being, you're a worshiping being. And the question's not, will I worship? The question for every human being to think about is, what will I worship? One memorable way of thinking about this uh, that I've come across is that sometimes people speak about human beings having a God-shaped hole in their heart. So there are people who who've maybe gone a long time in their lives without God, who have found a relationship with God, and they've found that that an emptiness or a hunger that they had in their lives has been been filled. That some sort of a a void that they'd always known has now been filled. Sometimes many people aren't very conscious of having that gap or that hole in their lives. And that's because we intrinsically try to fill it with something. So we'll try to fill it with uh, maybe with wealth and material things. Uh, We'll maybe try to fill it by fulfilling our ambition. Maybe it'll be possessions, some person, a hobby that we become addicted to and uh, and focused on. If we're not worshipping the true and living God, we'll find some God to worship because that's the way we seem to be made. Remember what we said at the beginning of our time together this morning. These commands were given by God to his people, to the people who had been rescued by him and brought out of Egypt. I think it's important that we remember that. They weren't given to the world at large, and they weren't given to people who didn't know God. They were given to his people. So it seems like God recognizes that even people who have been saved by him, who who claim to be his, are very prone to chasing after other gods. This isn't something for everyone else out there. This is something very much at home in my heart and maybe in a gathering like this. I wonder how far you and I have wandered from a single-minded and wholehearted allegiance to God. I think it can be quite difficult to discern that in the moment, particularly at a time like this when you're sitting in church and you're in the the God zone. You say to yourself, well, I'm here. I'm part of things. God's number one in my life. It can be hard, I think, to, to really be honest about that and to discern it. One of the books I'm reading as I'm uh, preaching this series for you is, is really a collection of the sermons that David Searle, my minister in Hamilton Road when I was a teenager, preached. So you will get used to the name because you will, you will hear him um, whenever I'm honest enough to, to footnote him and to say that I'm referencing him. In, in, the chap, in this chapter on the first commandment on having no other gods, David Searle suggests a three-way test 
to help us to see what's, what's number one in our lives, what's dominating our horizons. If you've been around here, you'll maybe have heard me use a couple of the three, but he adds a third. David Searle suggests, first of all, the money test. So he encourages us to have a look at how we spend our money. He says, take a look at the absolute necessities, how much you you must pay for housing, whether it's rent or mortgage, how how much you must pay to heat your home and clothe yourself and your dependents and feed yourselves. And then he says, everything else, have a look at how much you're spending on expensive car repayments, on designer clothes, on extravagant holidays, and compare that with how much you're giving to God. He says it's a very, it's a very honest assessment of what's number one in your life. He says how we spend our money will tell us very accurately who is our God. I don't think you could argue with that, really. Those choices show what our values are, don't they? His second test is the thought test. So he asks us to think, what's, what's the first thing you think about in the morning? What's the thing that keeps you awake in bed at night? If you have a, a, a moment in between times, if you're sitting waiting for the bus, or if... Uh, a client's late for an appointment and your mind's wandering. What does it wander to? What, what is your thought life? He says that's a good indicator of what we worship. It's not what we think. We are not what we think we are. What we think we are. Our thought life tells us a lot about our priorities and who our God is. Our religion is what we do with our solitariness. A third test then. We've talked about the the money test, the thought test. A third test is the time test. This one might be quite fresh in the memory. If you remember, it's an exercise we we did here a few months ago when we did a, a series teaching about Sabbath and how we use our time. I think... If I remember right, we photocopied a a weekly timesheet and gave one out with each uh, bulletin. And some of you I know did that. You had a crack and filled in how much of your time you're at work, how much of your time you sleep, how much of your time you're maybe caring for your children or, or some other dependent. And then eventually, somewhere around all of that, there's our discretionary time. What do we choose to do with the time over which we have some discretion. These things, again, would be a pretty good indicator of where our priorities lie. Folks, if you, if you did that, or if I did that, if we, if we looked at our, how we spent our money, how we spent our time, what our thought life was about, and, and put it all together, we'd soon know what, what our God is, what has number one in our lives. I'd encourage you to do that, either as I've described it or some version of it. Because it seems to me a a vital first step to making God number one, a vital first step is to recognize what else is, is above him in our priorities.
if we're dishonest or naive about that, then, then I think we'll fail to make God number one in our lives. A few weeks ago at a communion service, we were thinking briefly about how our, our faith is centered on, on the real person of the living and true God. We were thinking about, for a long time, about being a gospel-centered church, and then we remembered that, well, God is the gospel. He himself is the good news. So Christianity isn't primarily uh, an adherence to a set of beliefs. It's not a, a long rake of activities. It's a love affair with God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Imagine for a moment a household where the husband is fast becoming a workaholic. When the two were first married, the husband worked long hours. But over the years, those hours have become longer and longer. He's coming home later and later in the evenings and sometimes doesn't get home in time at all to see his wife on that given day. Eventually it gets to the point where the wife confronts him with an ultimatum. You're going to have to choose. It's your work or it's me. But you can't have both. You can't give your all to your work and give nothing to me. Make up your mind. I think we understand that language, many of us, because it's, a, it's a, a very real dynamic. In the first commandment, God uses language every bit as real as that kind of language. He says, I won't have any rivals. I must be the only God in your life. You must be 100% committed to me. If I'm to be your God, then have no other gods before me. Why is this? Why is it that God can make those sort of claims on us? Why can't he be number two or number three on the list? What is it about this God and what is it about us that, that means he must be number one? Why is that so? Can my Christianity not just fit in with the rest of my life? Let me suggest two absolutely fundamental reasons why God must be number one. First of all, he created us. We owe our very existence to him. We do have that God-shaped hole in our lives, and only he will fill it. There's a story about 1920s America in the very early days of motoring where a guy was on the road in a pretty remote part, and inexplicably his, his car just ground to a halt and spluttered to a standstill. He wasn't a member of the AA because there was no AA to be a member of. So he stood kicking the tires of his car and, and cursing his luck when, when a car slowly pulled up alongside and stopped. And the driver of this second car offered to help. 
He, he lifted the bonnet. He had a look into the engine. And within a couple of minutes, he had the engine running smoothly again. How did you manage that? The, the astonished motorist asked. Easy, the man said. I designed this car. I'm Henry Ford. God designed us. And we forget that to our peril. Listen, I appreciate that there are 150 years have passed since Darwin published Origin of the Species. I realize that we've had a century and a half now at least of speculation about human origins. But we should never ever lose sight of the fact that God is our creator. Even those scientists who trace it all back to a big bang, they're totally at a loss as to how the big bang or its equivalent came about. If there's a big bang, who let off the big banger? Nobody has these answers. Science presents itself as if it's all very sewn up and a creator God has been ruled out of the question. That's simply not true, folks. We forget that God created us. And when we do that, we miss out on the dignity and the meaning that our lives were always intended to have. He created us, he designed us, and it makes sense then to listen to him when he tells us how life works. When he says, don't have any other gods before me. Why does God have a claim on us? Firstly, because he's created us. But secondly, and even more importantly, because he has saved us. As we've been talking here both last week and this week, we'll remember that God giving the commandments was always in the context of him saving his people. He gave the law to people he had saved. And the same is true for us today, those who follow Jesus Christ today. Long before a Christian's call to any particular way of life or to any biblical morality, they're called to recognize that they are saved only in and through Jesus Christ. Folks, we've got to understand that. So when we approach these Ten Commandments now, we approach them only as we approach them through the cross of Jesus Christ. We remember the lengths that God has gone to in order to save us. We remember that dark sky. We remember the cry of Jesus from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We remember the lengths that Jesus went to in love. How he took the punishment that our sins deserved. How he did all this so that we might be forgiven. Friends, this is the God. This God who submitted to agony and shame. This is the God who says, I've forgiven your sins. I've set you free from slavery. Now, you must have no other gods before me. I long for your best. I long to give you a life of deep security and of happiness. I only want the best for you. I want us to be friends and to enjoy each other forever. 
Folks, we look at these commandments and we, we imagine that God sits there and says, I want these guys to obey this stuff. God wants us to love him. To respond to the, the ocean of love that he's poured out on us. And to love him. God wants us to enjoy him. I wonder, is that an oxymoron to you? Has it ever crossed your mind that you could enjoy God? We suspect God. We think he's harsh. We think he's a killjoy out to spoil our fun. Is it possible that we could enjoy God? Our creator who loves us. The savior who gave himself for us. If we approach these commandments this next few weeks and think of them only as a set of rules, we're going we're gonna to miss... We're, I was going to say we're going to miss so much. I think we're going to miss the whole thing. God invites us to a life of love. When Heather read that passage for us a few moments ago, it's a, it's a huge moment in the Gospels. The lawyers come to Jesus. They ask him, Jesus, what's life all about? What's, what's the, the most important command of the law? And it's funny, Jesus doesn't talk about obeying anything. That's not how he frames it. He says it's all about love. Loving God. Loving our neighbor. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say it's about keeping God's laws. It's about keeping your nose clean. It's about being a law-abiding, respectable citizen. It's about learning how to respect other people. It's about learning how to live and let live. He doesn't say any of these things because he wants more. You could live all of those things and still have no intimacy in your life. God created us to love him and to love each other. Not to keep laws and not to, to live a certain way. He created us for love. Last week I sent you home with some homework to do. I asked you to reflect on a question that I am still convinced will determine the outcome of how you'll enjoy these Ten Commandments. The question I asked you was this. Is God good? Is the life that he calls us to best? I don't know how much time you've had to think about that. Um, don't know what your early conclusions are. The truth is, in the end, we aren't going to begin even, even begin to obey one of these commands until we start to believe that God's good. We won't obey any of the nine that follow until we believe that life with God is best. But let me ask you another related question this morning. Do you enjoy God? And I throw that question out for 
for those of us like me who've grown up in the church and have been here all our lives, and, and those who are maybe here for the first time today, do you enjoy God or, or expect to? One thing's for sure that none of us will if there's something else sitting on the throne of our lives. If we're chasing after other things, then God's only ever going to be a frustrating presence in our lives. When Christian people two-time God, they, they live, they live I, I believe they live miserable lives that don't fulfill them and do nothing for the glory of God in the world. It's only when we make God our hero, when we make him our lover, when we make him our closest friend, that life with God moves from black and white into technicolor, that it comes alive. It doesn't seem to work when God's number two or number 20 on our list of priorities. It's when we make him number one that our relationship with God will become the closest and the dearest and most tender relationship in all the world. That's the first step to enjoying Jesus Christ. It's to take him at his word and to have no other gods before him. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would win our hard and cold hearts over to you. Where we're suspicious of you, where we think that you will kill the joy in our lives and, uh, and limit us and restrict us, show us that your desire is only to give us the fullest and richest and most joy-filled life of all. Lord, give us the courage to believe that having no other gods before you will be the, the best life of all. And Lord, where we have seen other gods and where we sense that they may, they may be on the throne of our lives, we pray that you'd help us to identify them and demolish them and remove them that we might begin to live the life you've really created us for. Amen. Our song is number 543. Uh, we'll keep our seats at least for the first time that we sing it. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. Uh, we'll keep our seats. The stewards will wait on you for your offering, and if there's time left, I'll invite you to stand for, for the second part of it.
number 543.